Well, thank you, Jose. I appreciate that prayer. I need it. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a teacher. I'm actually an engineer. <laughs> I work for the Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium. I do uh, water and sanitation projects in, in uh, the villages in Alaska, which is really rewarding. Um, but this is my first time in the pulpit, so uh, thank you for the prayer and hope you'd extend me some grace today because uh, I feel like I do have a message to share with everyone. So uh, I've entitled this message, um, Are Christians Called to a Life of Generosity? What's in it for me? So I want to start with a story. It's a story uh, from a number of years ago. It involves me and my wife. Uh, in September of 2005, three months after we got married, Sarah and I left Tennessee to serve overseas in the Peace Corps. We lived in Ghana and West Africa for the next two years. And uh, that's a picture of us, uh, what I used to look like before I joined the uniform service and had to shave. But <laughs> so, uh, so we lived in Ghana and West Africa for the next two years. We lived among the Konkumba people in a town called CB Hilltop within the northern part of the Volta region near the border with Togo. Now, the Konkumbas were, were known for being warriors and also for adhering stubbornly to their animistic and, and ancestor worship beliefs. We were given two bedrooms in the back of a house for our living quarters. And uh, there's a couple pictures there. I don't know if you can see them well, but in the upper left hand is, is, is a picture of Sayward with, with the children there. So many children. And then uh, in the upper right hand, that's a picture of the house that we lived in. Uh, we were given two bedrooms in the back of it, and uh, we built that shade out in the back of the house to protect us from the sun because it's so hot there near the equator. So uh, you can see our living quarters were pretty sparse. <laughs> there was no electricity, no running water, um, or flushable toilets. We had one of the only latrines and one of the only propane stoves in the village. Living in a lesser developed country challenged our ideas about materialism and basic needs. It had and continues to have a profound impact on, the, on our lifestyle choices. But it wasn't just the lifestyle choices that God wanted to teach us because he had a bigger lesson in store for us. Midway through our second year of service, we read a book by Rick Warren that many of you might have read called A Purpose Driven Life. There's a picture of the book. This book challenged us specifically in two ways when we read it. The first was to join a local church, and the second was to give to that church. You see, roughly 5% of CB Hilltop's population claimed to be Christian, with another 5% that practiced what we called just-in-case Christianity, which meant that they, they still practiced you know, their juju and paid fetish priests to sacrifice animals, for their protection, but they also might have attended church and read the Bible just in case this Jesus guy might be for real. CB Hilltop had four churches, of which we had attended all of them at one point or another to introduce ourselves as Peace Corps volunteers. Beyond that, we hadn't really returned to a single church um, very often. A Ghanaian church was long, sometimes over three hours in length, and there was an excessive amount of singing and dancing and drumming and the sermon was always given in the local language, which then needed to be uh, translated back into English for our benefit, which made the service run even longer. By the time we returned home in the blazing sun, we were absolutely wiped out for the day, and we just wanted to rest. So uh, we chose to have church at home in our shade, 
you know, which we had constructed. It was nice and cool in there. And uh, our church service usually only lasted about 30 to 45 minutes. We'd read some verses. Sayward had brought her guitar, so we'd sing some hymns. It was nice. The problem with our choice, though, not to attend a local church was that we were not openly edifying the body of Christ. We were essentially hiding our lamp under the bushel. Through the reading of A Purpose Driven Life, God challenged us to openly demonstrate our faith by joining a local church and then giving to that local church on a weekly basis. Our volunteer living allowances were not luxurious. We made roughly the same amount as a local school teacher, approximately $150 a month each. So between the two of us, uh, we decided that we would start tithing, which is, just means to give 10%, one-tenth of our allowance to our new, new church home, which was the Evangelical Church of Ghana, the ECG Church. So we were giving $30 a month, um, which was, you know, it doesn't seem like a lot maybe to you, but to us it was a lot of money, and, and to our local church it was a lot of money too. But you know what God did when we stepped out in faith like that? He blessed us. He really did. For us, that meant deeper relationships with our Ghanaian brothers and sisters at the ECG Church. And through God's provision, it meant we were still able to live on just one of our incomes and save the other to travel with after our Peace Corps service ended. So there's a couple photos up there. Uh, the one on the bottom left is, is, is of our church, the Evangelical Church of Ghana. It's, it's kind of a sparse building. Um, and then the inside, there'd be about you know, 20 to maybe 40 people who would attend on a regular basis. You notice something interesting on the left-hand side. If you look closely, you'll notice all the women are on one side and all the men are on the other side. We never really did figure out why they, they did it that way. But. And although, you know, we, we thought some of the practices were excessive during church, the Ghanaian church had one thing down, which, which I think maybe we could borrow, which is when they did the offering, they, they didn't just pass out bags or, or pass around a basket. They had a table up in the front with a basket on it, and, and they would call, either dismissed by rows, or they'd call out Friday-borns or Thursday-borns. And I was a Tuesday-born, so my, my name was Kwabana. And, and you'd go, and you'd, you'd dance up to the front with your offering. And if you had a handkerchief, maybe you'd pull that out, and you'd be waving it in the air. And then you'd go up front, and you'd put your offering, and then you'd, you'd dance back. So kind of fun. It's, it's a way to spruce up the giving, make it, make it more fun. But anyways, that, that story of our stepping out of faith in, in Ghana and, and what God was challenging us to brings me to our, my first point, which is giving reveals our faith. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus gives the parable of the hidden treasure and the pearl. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. And I didn't bookmark my Bible today because I wanted to make sure to give you guys enough time, too. So 13, starting in 44. Everyone there? All right. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Two verses 
one very powerful message. It is interesting to me that Jesus makes the same point twice in a row with very similar parables. Jesus doesn't want us to miss the heart of what he has to say here. That is, when we find God's kingdom, we are to do everything we can to acquire it. We're to go all in. The text for both parables says he sold everything. He sold all he had and bought it. And don't be mistaken, I I used to think that this verse meant that the man in the parable was trading in one treasure for another, some old pearls for a bigger, shinier pearl, so that there was no net loss or no net gain. But that's not the case at all. When, when the, the man in the story, when he sells everything he owns, he is saying, I am trading in all my earthly possessions and materials in order to acquire heavenly ones. It's an entirely different treasure. What I once set up as my idol or my god, little g, I no longer value, and I will give it all away to attain the true God. We do the same thing when we give our money, our treasure away. We say, compared to God's kingdom, this is just stuff, and I declare that these things do not have a hold on me, for I value Christ more. So that brings me to my first sub-point. Giving reveals our faith, it, it reveals our passion. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes this defining statement. In Matthew 6, 21, he says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. By telling us that our hearts follow our treasure, Jesus is saying, Show me your checkbook or your credit card statement, and I'll tell you what you're passionate about, where your heart is. Do you wish that you were more passionate about eternal things? Then perhaps you should reallocate some of your money from temporal things to eternal things. Then watch what happens. My second sub-point is giving reveals our faith, it reveals our priorities. There you go, Nate, thanks. The Bible teaches us that when we find the kingdom of God, when we choose to follow Jesus Christ, that we are given a new heart. From that moment on, God is calling us to live differently, to make kingdom decisions, instead of the same temporal, earthly ones that we have been previously. In essence, our priorities change because our hearts have changed. Paul gives us an account of the young churches in Macedonia doing just that. So if you would turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Starting in verse 1. It says, And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, 
but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Those are some powerful verses right there, a powerful passage. And many sermons could be preached just on that alone. It's packed with some incredible truths and encouragement. And I'm just going to hit the high points. So here you have some extremely poor churches in Macedonia, which would have likely been exempted from giving to the Christians in Jerusalem. However, it says that they pleaded with Paul to be able to contribute and then they blew everyone away with the amount that they gave. And I, I believe it was due to God's grace. They saw giving as a privilege and not a duty, it says in verse 4. How many of us can say the same thing about giving? Their giving revealed their priorities. It says first to God and then to the body of Christ in verse 5. Paul tells the Corinthian church that along with faith, speech, and knowledge, they should also excel in giving. So he's putting some weight behind that. And lastly, it's Christ's grace that defines, motivates, and puts into perspective our giving. Our giving is a reflexive response to the grace of God in our lives. It doesn't come out of our altruism or our philanthropy. It comes out of the transforming work of Christ within us. His grace is the action, and our giving is the reaction. We give because he first gave to us, and we cannot outgive God. So that brings me to my second point. Giving is rewarded by God. To continue with our story, when we came back to the States from Africa in, uh, in 2007 and, and then in 2008, um, we were looking for jobs uh, in Alaska, for this is where we met and fell in love 10 years ago in 2003. God blessed us with jobs, and uh, we found a reasonably priced duplex off of Muldoon. And the first thing we did, you know, from our lesson in Ghana was we looked for a home church. The second church we visited was Changepoint, the Changepoint main campus on Raspberry. And we instantly felt like God was calling us to make it our new, our new church home. So our next natural step was to start giving to our church home. Believe it or not, but even based on our experience in Ghana, this was not an easy decision for me. See, collectively, Sayward and I had about $36,000 in student loans that needed to be paid off. And coming from our stint in the Peace Corps, we were pretty much starting from scratch financially. You don't make a lot of money in the Peace Corps. <laughs> That's why you're called a volunteer. <laughs> so um, I'm not sure where this actually came from. Actually, I... I'm pretty sure this is a lie that the enemy feeds us, but I felt like our indebtedness was like a millstone that was just hanging around my neck. And this question arose, how can you afford to give so long as you are in debt? And I'll repeat that again. How can you afford to give so long as you are in debt? I'm sure it's a question that many people ask themselves, maybe even some here today. However, the more that I considered it, the more I realized that the answer to that question is yet another question, which is, how can you afford not to give if you are in debt? Let me explain that. Referencing the book of Haggai, uh, Randy Elkhorn, in his book, The Treasure Principle, which is an excellent book if you've never read it, 
Um, he puts it this way. He says, ironically, many people can't afford to give precisely because they're not giving. If we pay our debts first to God, then we will incur his blessing to help us pay our debts to men. But when we rob God to pay men, we rob ourselves of God's blessing. No wonder we don't have enough. It's a vicious cycle, and it takes obedient faith to break out of it. Sayward and I took that step of faith, and we decided to trust God. We were led to celebrate the discipline of simplicity in our lives. When we first came to Alaska, for us that meant uh, no TV or cable, no internet at the house. Uh, We shared a cell phone. We shared an old but reliable vehicle, a 1994 Saturn, which we still drive and has like 265,000 miles on it. God's blessed us in that. Um, You know, we shopped for clothes and furniture at thrift stores and garage sales. But also that meant that we could give at least 10% of our income towards our church home and other Christian charities. What God did next, I could not have predicted. Within nine months, we had paid off all of our student loans. There is a blessing there. So the sub-point for that is giving is rewarded by God. It is rewarded in this life. There are many verses to support this. And even though I'm not a farmer, I like the one in Proverbs chapter 3, 9 and 10, which says, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of your wealth. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. And actually, uh, you know, when Jose was up here a couple weeks ago, I, I was blessed by what he had to say on stage in support of this as well from his Malachi uh, 3.10 verse, which says, Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing there will not be enough room to store it. And don't get me wrong, I'm not talking specifically about a prosperity theology. I'm talking about giving money. Um, and we were definitely blessed in that regard. But blessings come in, in, in more ways than just financial gain. My second subpoint is it is also rewarded in, in the next life. And that's kind of the basis of, of this book, The Treasure Principle. So in Matthew 6, Jesus unveils the foundation of what Alcorn calls the treasure principle. So let's, uh, let's pick it up in verse 19. That's Matthew 6, 19, if you turn with, it, with me to it. Here we go. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And here it is again. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Consider what Jesus is saying. Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth. Why not? Is it because earthly treasures are bad? No, because they won't last. As Christians, we have inside knowledge of an eventual worldwide upheaval caused by Christ's return. The ultimate insider trading tip is that Earth's currency will become worthless when Christ returns. 
or when you die, whichever comes first. And they're both eventualities, right? So what is it that Jesus commands us to do? He says, store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Jesus has a treasure mentality. He wants us to store up treasures. He's just telling us to stop storing them in the wrong place and start storing them in the right place. So to kind of conclude my message, uh, the last part of our story is, is still ongoing. Um, four years ago, after being in Alaska, um, not long after we had paid off our student loans, uh, Sayward and I made a decision that many families do. We decided to purchase a house. And in order to do that, we had to go in debt again. <laughs> That's what that big mortgage is all about. But we have remained steadfast in our giving, thanks be to God. And our decision to live simply has not changed much either. Although we each have a cell phone now and we do have internet service at the home. So you, won't, you still won't see us driving the fanciest vehicles or, or wearing the trendiest clothes. As I put on these clothes today, I realized that I got this shirt at Planet Express in Knoxville, which is a thrift store. And I got these pants at Value Village, you know, on Northern Lights. So, anyways. My point is, <laughs> in the last four years, by remaining steadfast in our giving, by living simply and celebrating that, God has blessed us to such an extent that we are close to being able to pay off our house. And that is with my wife being a stay-at-home mom for almost a year now. I'm excited when that day comes. To me, being out of debt means financial freedom and new opportunities to excel in giving. Jose, you can bring your team up. So where does the rubber meet the road? In our case, I believe we're experiencing only a taste of God's abundant blessing. In the treasure principle, the author gives amazing stories of followers of Jesus cheerfully giving half and even up to 90% of their incomes away to further the kingdom of God. It sounds impossible, right? But like that song we sang, you know, nothing is impossible for God. It also challenges me to reconsider where I and my family are at with our giving. We began six years ago giving 10% of our income, and although that's a good starting place, it hasn't really increased much for us. If I'm really honest with myself, I have to admit that I can give more than that. And the only thing that is stopping me is my own reluctance to trust God more. It presents an opportunity. So when asked the, the question, are Christians called to a life of generosity? I believe wholeheartedly that the answer is yes. Giving reveals our faith. It reveals our passions and reveals our priorities. We are called to be generous and give because Jesus Christ first gave so richly to us. Well, you might ask yourself, what's in it for me? The answer to that is more than you ever imagined. Your giving is rewarded in this life, and it's rewarded in the life to come. So I have some reflective questions. The first is, how does your personal giving reveal your faith? How does it show what your passions and priorities are? If Jesus were to look at your checkbook or credit card statement or even your calendar, how would that reveal what's important to you in your life? Secondly, are you receiving God's reward and blessing in this life? 
If not, I want you to pray about it and ask God to speak to you clearly about this. It may be that you need to step out in obedience and faith to increase your giving so that God can increase his blessing. Talk to your spouse about this if you're married. Go talk to a Christian mentor or an elder in the church. Lastly, what about the next life? Where are you storing up your treasure? Are you investing in earthly things that will only serve to decay and rust? Or are you storing up your treasures in heaven where you will be able to enjoy them for eternity? I'd like to end my message with a passage from 1 Timothy chapter 6, which I think just ties everything nicely together. It's Timothy 6, starting in uh, verse 17. It says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life.